I'm Vivian Host, a correspondent for Resident Advisor, and it's my pleasure to be sitting here with Juan Allure of Elite Beats. For over 20 years, Juan has been a staple of the ballroom culture, pushing the sounds and styles of the Vogue ball forward with his tracks and his DJ sets. Juan is the one who reignited the interest in using the ha dance in ballroom with his Allure Ha from 2000. And he's been a big influence on younger generations of producers like Mike Q, Byral the Great, and Bok Bok, among others. One of the greatest things about Vuan's sound is how he's documented the legendary voices of Vogue, like Sanaya Ebony, Kevin Jay-Z Prodigy, Miss J, and even RuPaul. And beyond that, he's a fixture in the house music culture of the Washington, D.C. area and Naples, Italy, and has been serving newcomers the real rules of the ballroom on his Facebook page for the last several years now. We've got a lot to learn, and I'm so happy to be here with Juan Allure. Juan Allure, welcome to the Resident Advisor Podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me. So, I guess taking it back to the beginning in a, in some ways, when was the first time that you ever saw someone voguing or ever interacted in any way with ballroom culture? Um, I was at the time 13 and a half. I was in the sound factory and I was in there primarily for house dancing because the music was great. A lot of the house dancers were there. And at the time, people were voguing, but I just didn't see them. I was more interested in the dance I was doing. And one day I went to the Sound Factory and it happened to be on the LGBT night. And they were house dancing as well. But then I just caught a glimpse of these people doing this dance and it was like, wow, it's infinite. You can do anything to it. So it caught my eye. And that's when I noticed around the clubs in New York, everybody was doing it. I was like, oh, it was really cool. You started going to clubs at a really early age as a dancer. Who were these people taking you to the clubs? How did you meet them and link up with them to go to a place like Sound Factory? I had a cousin that was, uh, he was a bouncer. Um, he was a bounce for uh, the underground. He used to also work at Roselands. And my cousins who were like two years older than me, three years older than me, in the street, they used to... Uh, get a lot of respect from dancing and I used to watch them and want to go and dance and I got pretty good and at parties we used to always show out and all that kind of stuff so they started going to uh, pal jams police athletic league parties and it, they were thrown by the police and it's like in, in the schools and everything and I wanted to go I wanted to go but I was way too young and in the summers my aunt <laughs> my mother's very loose sister <laughs> let me go with her kids where where they went. So I went for all the music and all the parties and everything, even though I was younger. I'm an only child, um, but I have millions of cousins. So she was happy because I was uh, living <laughs> with uh, my cousins, living life, going around, because she thought I was very in-the-house kind of thing. Wait, she thought you were shy, so she thought yeah. you were getting out of your... Getting out of my shell, but... My cousins will tell you, like, no, he's not shy. <laughs> <laughs> you were just shy in the house around yeah. the adults, but not really. So you mentioned Sound Factory, and I think mm -hmm. that was a, a had a pretty big impact Ooh, on yeah. you and you know your musical career following that. Can you kind of describe what was going on at Sound Factory around 1989, 1990? Yeah. Sound Factory was, uh, at that time, the biggest dance club. It was... Phenomenal because it didn't have um, alcohol at all. It was a juice bar. Everyone was there for the music. Junior Vasquez was the DJ. Um, I didn't know anybody else that played there. Frankie Knuckles played there, but at that time, all I knew was Junior Vasquez. When you got in there, that was the first club that I knew that changed. Like every time you went in there, it was a different theme. The blocks that moved around, the building was the same, but when you came in, it was the atmosphere. Um, and Junior would play these long sets, or if he wanted to break a record, he would drill this record into you throughout the night, bringing it back and forth like Larry LeVan used to do. But I never met him. But um, he would just weave this tapestry of music together. And he made two songs, which came up uh, in the ballroom scene. Um, of course, worked this buzzing. And um, dub break, but he would only play them if it got really, 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 really hot. 
um, the battles uh, that happened that night. You know, the kids were in there, they were voguing, they were walking runway, and he would be on the mic, he would be like, battle, 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 and like screaming into the mic, and they would keep doing it. But it would be like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and you think you're really killing it, and he wouldn't play the song. A month would go by, he wouldn't play the song. And one night you're just in there, and they're just going out, all of a sudden you would hear it, and everybody would just run to the floor. It was a, a thrill factor to see when that song came on and who got to work that beat out because you would never hear it all the time. But he would actually play the beginning of it, like um, you would hear work this pussy and everyone would scream and he would never play it. Classic bitchy Junior Vasquez movie. He would move. never play it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was interested to know, how long was it from when you saw people voguing in Sound Factory to you going to a Vogue ball? I actually went to my first uh, ball around this time. It was just before I left to go uh, to school in Italy. And I, it was the uh, Ultra Omni Ball uh, at the Red Parrot. And I remember I went to, um, I went to the village and got my, my coveralls and these huge dance shoes and everything. And we went in there at 4 o'clock in the morning and we came out like 6.30 in the morning the next day. And I couldn't believe it was just a wow factor. Everything happened was a wow factor. Um, Red Alert was there as a special judge. Um, they had a category for um, the ninth month of pregnancy where people were actually walking and giving birth. And this, you're, you're, you're 13 and a half. Your eyes are flickering like, this is really happening. And one of the images that stuck in my head was um, this one contestant was walking. And they were doing like fake labor pains. And she actually had water under her shirt and it broke. So like her water had broken. And she went into contractions and all that stuff. And I'm like, and I found out it was one of my friends later. She said, that was me. I did that. It's, oh my God, that thing seared in my head, you know. But it was around the same time because, because when I noticed Vulcan, I got to know a lot of people in the ballroom scene at that moment. I got friends immediately because I was dancing. Uh, Junior Vasquez, uh, we friended each other. It was everyone around there, all the houses of Milan, um, Ultra Omni, Ebony's. It was so many of them. But um, I didn't join one. Um, people had uh, recommended me for houses, but I didn't join because I was leaving. I knew I was leaving. Around 1989, 1990 was, I guess, the first spike of Vogue's popularity in mainstream culture. Like Madonna mm -hmm. infamously goes to Sound Factory, plucks some dancers. They end up choreographing from the House of Extravaganza, mm -hmm. who end up choreographing the Vogue video. She yes. makes Vogue. It's this huge hit in the mainstream. Also, Paris is Burning comes out that same year. And... From what you're saying, I mean, if Red Alert was judging this ball, it sounds like it wasn't entirely this completely underground thing that is sometimes portrayed as. Oh, it's it's big. It, it it's always been bigger than anyone would know. If you, it's one of those things that if you don't know, once you get a, a look at it, you'll be like, whoa, because Phyllis Hyman was in a house, Amber Rose was in a house. Um, they adopted people in the house, but these people walked. Michelle Visage was in the house. You know, she was uh, Valentino. The ballroom community has always worked with artists as far as uh, music, dancing, all of that stuff. There's Vogers in all the early seduction videos, Latifah's videos, Jungle Brothers' videos, Janet Jackson's videos. They're all in there. And it, you just have to look. And when, when you finally figure out what it is, you're like, they've always been there. The people from Main Street would come. They would come to the balls. They sponsored um, Barch. Susan Barch did the Love Ball, which was great. Uh, my ex is in there. Everybody's in there. Willie, David, Eden, Extravaganza, everybody. It's huge. It's not a little thing. Tell me about the music at the balls during this time. At Sound Factory, you had these great. New York house records being played from like tribal records, Strictly mm -hmm. Rhythm, uh, Merck down in Miami, this like very hard tribal house sound. And then you get these tracks like Walk For Me that yes. we associate, you know, so fully with ballroom now. 
but was the music at the at the ball then that no. the music at the balls were what um we got from the clubs what shows like pose are missing they're showing you the house side of it the family side of it they're showing you the struggle side of it you see the balls and almost every episode of pose has a ball in it but there were only like four or five balls a year so they weren't that quick behind each other where we were was inside the club so whatever songs were hot they took into the ballroom there were staple songs that they used let's go let's go from fast eddie um, love hangover diana ross because it's so fab um the hot dance surfaced and it went away and then it came back um robbie tronco walked for me and romeo is a house uh, with thomas biscardi from philly they made two tracks and then he stopped. There was another one on uh, 100% Overness, but they were more bitch tracks, but done from a male perspective. So Ballroom didn't have their own music. They used whatever, what was out there. And when I came along, I made music specifically for the ball. And we got our own music and it didn't take long for it to get out and everybody was like, what is this? Well, yeah, part of the reason I'm asking is because I was reading another interview with you and you were talking about how you went to play some ball. And this was later on. This was probably in the late 90s, early 2000s. But you were talking about how the music at this ball was really stale. And then you thought, oh, I need to make new tracks. What happened was the people were stale. The music I was playing was, you know, as we'd always done. I took went and got the hottest tracks. I was playing the hottest tracks out. And for some reason, a lot of people were sitting in there like, and I'm not used to that. I, I would go to a ball and see people around the sides practicing. If you walked runway or you vote, they were around there just going off. It was in Detroit. And I'm sitting in there and I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. It's like my first time I was an official ballroom DJ. And I'm like, what is going on? You're not responding to anything. It gets later and later, so I'm uh, running out of tracks. I'm tipping into what I'm going to play for the ball, which I hate to do. I don't want to repeat anything. And I played the ha. When I played the ha dance, everybody jumped up. And this was the early version of the ha. It was very one, two, three, four. One, two, three, bam. One, two, three, bam. Very that. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you waited all night just for this. So after that night, I went home back to D.C., and I was uh, pissed off because I had never carried all my own music before. And I had gone through the airport carrying this music. And I'm like, I carried all that music, and you want to dance. And I, I said, okay. And I went home, and I made a remix. And I went back to Detroit in like two weeks because they loved what I did and did the same thing, played the you know, hotter music. They sat there. And I played a little bit, and I played the hot, and they jumped up again. And it was on, um, it was on vinyl. So then I cut it off, and went, and everyone looked and it said, "You want a Vogue, fam? You want the ha? Well, I'll give it to you, but not like you remember it. Uh, welcome to the vinyl or exclusive, the ha." And went, girls get ready, boom, boom, boom. And the remix came on. Everybody was like, "Oh my god!" And then I cut it off. They were like, "Put that back on." I said, "No, later." So you pulled the Junior Vasquez move. Just give him a taste, and mm -hmm. then make him wait. And this was your, so the ha you're talking about is uh, the Masters at Work ha dance, mm -hmm. which I'm just going to play the tiniest little bit of it in case people. But anyway, this this beat and this crash and the sample ha is like what people fundamentally these days associate with ballroom. the ballroom sound. And it's been often copied by people around the world, put in their tracks, and you know, to some to positive effect, some people should yeah. probably not be putting some, it in there. They the thing is, um, if if you don't understand where to put it and how to put it. You're just wasting your time. There's so many people that, who put it on there and they look, I need to give uh, the ballroom starter kit. There is no ballroom starter kit. 
you don't even need that. You just need to make a hot beat if you understand what dancers are looking for. But if you use that, use it the right way. The distortion of the hot when you hear that, that's what they want in their body. Oh, it shakes you. It shakes you. And that was the drama of the song, was to knock you out of your comfort zone. That's the reaction you want. What is it about Masters at Work, the hot dance, that works so perfectly with Vogue? Drama. Any song that's dramatic is going to work. Elements, Danny Teneglia, all of the, the tribal Americas where they built up drama. And the more dramatic, the better it's going to be. Love Hangover is so dramatic with the strings and all that stuff. Drama. The sort of track that conveys that is different over the years, right? Like the thing you're talking about, like Diana Ross or MFSB, mm-hmm. that is like yes. from the old school. It's the old, old way. it's old school and it's old way. But the thing is, there's so much, even in its own style, it loves the message is almost what, 17 minutes long. And it's a part on the song that goes into the regular beat that I really don't care for. But when it's coming on, the strings and all that, you're getting all of this build up. It's, it's, that's what you're looking for. And you execute it with the beat. The ha comes in with the crash and sets you up for a drama. The be- the, there are two versions. The one that starts with the crash and one that starts with the boyka, 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 ha. Both of them have two different effects. Uh, one is softer and one is more dramatic. If I understand correctly, also, you choose different music depending on which category people are walking in a ball. So can yes. you give me... An example of what music goes with what different category. Like if people are walking Vogue Femme, what does that category mean and what song are you going to play there? Vogue Femme is the way it's supposed to be. It is a a butch queen, a guy, voguing like a femme queen, a female. That's what the category was. It was a joke. It was for a key. And then it became, they became so good at it, it became a category. So you play a song that the females would actually go off to. The ha, they used to ha, they used. They did use Let's Go, Let's Go, Bango, but these were older tracks. And as they, we got to the ha's, we made different ha's. And, you know, sexy like Sanaya and all these things, you know, these songs came up that they could really emote to. Um, for Old Way, it is basically the older tracks that uh, came up through the test of time. Love is the Message. Again, bango, um, hot for you. And it, it's based on precision because a lot of the people that, that uh, perform Old Way are alive and well, and they're still here, and they will come through and light a floor up in a minute. New Way deals with a lot of bending and stretching, so you'll hear a lot of synth slides. You'll hear a lot of Darude. You'll hear a lot of Robbie Rivera. You know, more Danny Teneglia, these types of songs, more tribal, will fit into this category. Runway, we're looking for, you know, like a Butch Queen Up in Palms or something like May Anarchy, something for runway shows, pretty much um, edgy songs uh, with a beat, um, beautiful people, Marilyn Manson. It's, it's a whole bunch of songs that we use. They fall into different categories for everyone to walk. So if you were a female, male, trans female, trans male. They're divided up so you can walk. You have your own special category. And we talked a little bit about the songs for the different categories, but are there also now tracks for the different performers as well? Like if There are tracks for performers. Um, sometimes you have a performer that just, they've said something, they've done something, or the energy in that song is them, where it just garners a track. You know, like Sanaya, a person this big in ballroom, you have to make a track that's hot, but it can also stand the test of time. So that's kind of hard to do when you think about it, but when it hits you, it hits you. And when that one hit me, it just blew up. And everybody was just like, yeah, yeah. And You just have to work on it that hard and pay, you know, because you're embodying a person in a track. So if that person is over the track, you know, it's like it'll be there for a minute and then they forget all about it. 
but I tend to make songs that hang around for years. And that's that's what I pride myself on. It's like when we make a track, it's not disposable. It's going to be one of the staples. So what do you consider to be your most famous tracks or your most staple tracks oh out of God. all of these that you've done? Definitely um, a few of the LSS beats. LSS is Legend Statements and Stars. And this is the tracks that are played at the beginning of a ball. The way you know a ball is really starting is you'll hear Let's Go, Let's Go by Fast Eddie. And I made a song a few years ago called um, Come On and Get You Some More, which is using um, Let No Man Put Asunder and just hyped it up. And it became an anthem. Let Them Know It became an anthem. I have one now, um, Let's Get It Started, kind of large. These songs are like, they open up the night and it's so many people that want to walk on these songs or get a piece of this because it is like the uh, fanfare you coming to walk a ball. I mean, I, I know I've spent a lot of time asking you about how the songs work for different categories and different mm-hmm. people and this and that, but I think it's really important for people to learn this information if they're interested in making something that uses the elements of ballroom and uses mm-hmm. that style a lot of people think that it's um, it's a bunch of crashes, and it's not. The thing is, those crashes are there for a reason. If you actually listen to where the crashes are being played, it is to agitate the people. It is to make a point for the commentator. It is for the performer that's performing to give us a little bit more. You know, when they say, hold the music, bam, hold the music, bam, and people are like, you just did it. You shook your head. <laughs> You see, you go along with it because I'm not going to stop it. I'm not going to stop it. And then I stop. You know, it, it's, it's a tool to use. You know, it's like crowd manipulation. You know, we get the commentator to get into their thing. We get the performer to get into their thing. We get participation from the crowd when you play something and they can't take it anymore. They're running all around here, voguing and walking runway, even though the ball is going on. And they're just in their own world. Back here walking runway and voguing, it was like, gotcha. But it's it's so much more, you know, into what goes on in ballroom culture that you just can't listen or see it. You got to come experience it. And you, I say experience it, you don't have to become a scholar, but come in and look and see where this is coming from. All this, it's, it's a feeling. You know, teaching someone to vogue, voguing is something that's personal. And, you know, you're expressing yourself. I can't teach you to express yourself. I can teach you some moves. But you have to take it and make it your own. That's why classes, to me, do not work. Because it's, so, it's supposed to be in the moment and you doing you. No one can do you. You talked about capturing the essence of someone like Sanaya in a track and... I didn't know this until very recently that you worked um, on some records with RuPaul. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, my my last uh, biggest thing, aside from my EP that just came out not too long ago in August, uh, we took Lenny Kravitz to number one. And he, that was the first time he ever had a um, dance hit. And I was happy to be on that package with David Guetta and Robbie Rivera and Tom Steffen and a lot of other people. Um, but yeah, but RuPaul... Um, RuPaul's fan base is mainly circuit. She was picked up with Ballroom when You Better Work came out. It became a slogan, but then her music didn't gel with the Ballroom. And then, you know, she went a whole different direction. For me, RuPaul came to my inbox. And I thought somebody was messing with me because I, you know, I played on a show with her before in D.C., and she called me. He was like, hi, it's Rue. I was like, it is you. She's like, yeah, well, what did you think it was? So we talked. And my purpose was not to give her ballroom because that's not her audience, but to give her something that she didn't have. And it worked. She gave me all these outtakes. And she said, go ahead and do what you're going to do. One day I hit something, and it was this one track, which is um, Feeling Like a Woman. And it had the groove to it, and it was just hot, and everyone took to it. And then the other ones came basically after that, and 
I gave him two. She said, well, how many did you have? I said, well, I did five. I lied. I only did four. But I had finished the fifth one and sent it to her. I said, okay, she's going to tell me which one she wants and blah, blah, blah. And then <laughs> I see the thing come out on Billboard that it was all released. And I'm like, she took all five of them. And it went to number three. And then the thing with the show, um, when that one went crazy. What um, was that? Category is with Peppermint and all of when they did the rap and everything. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was my track. And at that time, um, everything on War of the Wonder had a Vonalore beat behind it. All the commercials were Vonalore music. It was crazy. So how does this experience of DJing at balls and DJing for such a specific purpose interact with your other DJ sets when you're just playing in a club? Um, if you're getting me for ballroom, I'm going to give you ballroom. If you're getting me to play just for a club, I may sneak a couple ballroom tracks in or my tracks in because I make non-ballroom music as well. But if I know this is going to work in a club, I'm going to take it to the club anyway. And I'm careful to watch the crowd, see what they react to. You know, it, the worst thing you do is go somewhere and play a ballroom set with no one in there using the ballroom. They don't understand it, so why are you crashing them all night long? It makes no sense. So you have to watch the room and I love to go early to see what everyone is doing. And it was it was so funny because um, when I first got the call to come to Williamsburg to play, they were like, oh, yeah, we want you to come up and play. And I was like, oh, where are we at in Manhattan? They like, no, 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 we're in Brooklyn. I said, Brooklyn? I went out there. I was with, um, I'm trying to think, Kush, Kush's party. Oh, Jay Kush. Yeah, Jay Kush. And it was packed. And it was no one we knew. I'm, they're playing my tracks, and they're all singing to the singing everything, every little hook, everything. I'm like, how do you know this music? And it was like, it just goes along with the night. You know, they do this, they go in a trap. And then it goes up and down like this. I'm like, oh. So it made sense. And it was a whole new audience for me. I can remember looking for your music. And actually, the only way to get it at a certain point was to order CDs off your website, or actually see you in person at a gig and buy a CD from you there. There was a whole economy if your stuff wasn't getting pressed on vinyl, because obviously that's expensive. And this was pre-downloading being so easy to do mm -hmm. and Bandcamp and everything being so easy to access that like a lot of your your tracks, and you were incredibly prolific, you had like 30, 40 different <laughs> CDs you could buy, but you could only, it was kind of a challenge. Like first you had to new, know who Von Allure Yes. was then you had to figure out how we're gonna like find your cd or find it, you in person it was incredible because um this music was made specifically for the ballroom and i didn't think i was gonna i was doing other music to put out so i was putting music out and when i made all of these folk femme tracks my category is always so my friends came up and said um it's a shame you made all this music and it's hot, but you don't have not one old way beat. And I said, I don't. And then I started making all the old way beats and all the runway beats and all the LSS beats. So I would go to work from 3 to 11. The most uh, I do at my job is about two and a half hours of work, which gives me five and a half hours to do nothing but make tracks. And every day at work, I would make about three different tracks. By the end of the week, I would have 15, take it straight to the club and play them and make a CD, come back the next week, do the same thing, sell the CD from last week and have another CD. So it became so big and the tracks just kept coming that um, when people found out, mostly by ballroom, that they were there and said, you know, put it online and let them know that you're doing it. I said, like, yeah, now you can go online and get it. And people start ordering it from everywhere. I'm like, oh, oh my God. Like, like, how do you know about it? That's what I really wanted to know is how people found out. But when there's a will, there's a way. When, if you listen to my beginning tracks, they're all more heavily drum orientated. The drum samples I used took up the place of a bass, of keys, everything. It was all drums. So I used up all the memories. So all my early tracks are no longer in three minutes. And... When I was at work, I started to take the drum machine in and I got a task scam and started to stretch out and got a computer. Oh, and it got bigger and better and cleaner. 
So that's how I graduated to the computer. <laughs> your intention originally when you started DJing and your path that you were on was not necessarily that you were going to be this DJ at all these balls, right? It happened on purpose accidentally. They were hooked when I went to Detroit. And then when I made the remixes, then they were up and they were around. I was like, ah. Oh. So I kept making them and kept coming with this. And then this person's having a ball. I want you to come here and I want you to come to Atlanta. I want you to come to Chicago. Everyone else that was playing balls, it stopped getting called. Um, there's, a, there's a set of us, Angel, uh, Angel X, Mike Q, myself, and oh my God, Lucky was based in Baltimore, Baltimore, DC, New York, and New Jersey. And our, my mentor, DJ Cedric, um, we were the ones getting put, called all over the country. And now, are there many more DJs? There's more. Balls? There's many more DJs. Uh, people who have picked up. There's um, Cartel. Uh, it's another part of Elite Beats over in London. Um, DJ Lofi, Lazy Flow, out of France, Kitty Smile, S Grove. There's quite a few of them. So earlier you mentioned that at a young age you ended up going to school in Italy. Mm -hmm. I graduated early, so I went to Italy. I was 15 and a half, almost 16. Exchange student programs. You do it your sophomore year, you go your junior year, and then you come back for your senior year. I did it to get out of class. Matter of fact, we all did. All uh, College prep, we all did. It was one of the days we went to take a test and we went home. Something happened. The mail was lost. Uh, I, I just assumed we didn't get it. Spent my junior year uh, here. And when my senior year came up, <laughs> when I got my diploma and came walking down the aisle, my guidance counselor was running. And he came over, he spoke to me, and told me that I had been accepted, and the family had already been given the money, and I had to go. I said, but I graduated. And he said, well, it's going to be a first year in college. And he said, you can pick where you want to go, but you can't pick Spain. And I picked Italy. And I got over there, and they put you in this huge hotel. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be really cool. I said, well, you come down and, you know, get into the bus. It's going to take you over to school for registration. 6.30 in the morning, first thing I heard in that bus was house music. I was like, ugh. They played house music like you hear R&B and hip-hop here. Total reverse. All you heard over there was dance music all day. And I was like, this is heaven. They had very big clubs over there, huge clubs. They had um, organizations that ran the nights over there. And I always wanted them to take me to one of these clubs. Just take me. I just need to go. And we went to uh, my first uh, club, which was in Perodue. And I walked in. That was the, it looked like I had come off of a video. Timberlands, baggy jeans, camouflage, uh, goose down jacket, goggles, everything. So they came and ran and looked at me like, you know, where'd you come from? And when the music came, I started to dance. And I incorporated a lot of Vogue into the dance, but I would not Vogue. They really didn't have a gay scene, per se, but inside their clubs, you knew there were, there were gay people there, and with their security, you weren't going to have an issue. But I would, not, I would not Vogue, but I put stuff into it. <laughs> where If anybody was looking, you knew it was Vogue. I was not identifying as gay then, and I was like, I wasn't saying anything. And the first person who identified was Ted Patterson. <laughs> DJ Ted Patterson, he was there one night. and said, yeah, I saw you voguing over there. I said, oh. <laughs> I caught their attention. They hired me. My job was when the American DJs came, was to put them at ease, you know, because they really couldn't speak Italian. First thing, I was there for two and a half years and worked my way into the government by helping someone from the military who I did not know. She wasn't actually in the military. She was a military wife. She would just happen to be the admiral's wife. And I helped her in a situation because she couldn't speak English. You know, she was distressed. I stopped. I spoke to the guy. I spoke to her. And she was like, oh, yes, yes. And I called. We were supposed to call. Spoke to them. And they sent somebody out. And she was like, can you please come to the base tomorrow? I said, sure. She said, well, come 
And she gave me the time. I came there, and the Admiral was there, and he thanked me. And he was like, you're American. Um, can I see your paperwork? And I showed him all my paperwork and all my school uh, schooling, and they let me go to the base so I could get food, music, everything coming from the States. So that's how I got into the government job. That's how I came back to D.C. and got my job. <laughs> and then went back and then came back. My program that I was working finished in the University of Maryland. So I finished up in the University of Maryland. I became the subject of someone's thesis, and they asked me to come back for a lecture. And said, if you come back, we'll work on another degree with you. And so I went back. At what point during this journey do you start DJing and or working on your own music? When I left Italy the first time, the first two years, I didn't want to tell anyone I was leaving because they are very emotional. <laughs> and I got so close with some people that I'm like, okay, I just need to leave. The week I was leaving, on a Tuesday, a friend of mine, a DJ who taught me to DJ, um, took me around downtown Naples and we went to like like a, a building like much like this. And a guy had a tracking machine and a beat that he had made. And they were playing it. And they said, what do you think about it? I said, oh, it was cool. He said, can I have him write some lyrics to it? And we were in the store, no um, soundproofing. And I said what I wrote. And then two days later, I was gone. So fast forward about a year and a half. Same friend who took me downtown calls me. And he says, um, oh, my God, this company did you... This, they did this so wrong, you have to come back. Something, something's bad, something's bad. And I was like, what is bad? I went there, and I went to one of my favorite clubs called the um, Tridoc. They played hip-hop, and then in, in the middle of the night, they switched the house. So I'm in there dancing. I'm like, okay, this is cool. And I'm hearing this beat. I said, this sounds familiar. And then I hear it, and it's me. So I go up to the DJ, and I'm like, what is that? And I'm looking at it, and looking at it spin around. And it's my record that I recorded before I left. And it went really, really big. It went to like number four. And this is what he was trying to tell me a year and a half ago. That they sold it, used it, and it, it sold. That was Tuesday. Wednesday, I go to the record store, one of my favorites, and I see the guy. And he's like, oh, my God, Vaughn, 10 basic elements. I'm like, yeah, where is it? You know, I want it. So I'm doing this, and my eyebrows are very expressive. So someone's outside from the record company. He calls the studio and said, Vaughn's back, and he's mad. <laughs> so I'm talking to the record company. By the time I get home, my friend calls me, says, Friday we have to go to the record company. They want to have a talk. They want to be real nice and everything. I'm like, okay. So we go Friday. And they're real nervous. And they wouldn't open up the door. Then they opened up the gate. And then he came in. We sat down. And they were real nervous walking around. And they were like, so this is what happened. And blah, blah, blah. And then they said, yeah, he was mad. And he was outside. And he was going off. I said, no. I just want the record. I don't have it. And then everybody just broke out laughing. And they finally bring out the checkbook that this thing had generated. They kept all the money. And gave it to me. So I actually started making tracks the second time I had gone back. So that's 2000. Around the same time I was making club tracks for um, the ballroom. So you mentioned uh, this DJ by the name of Cedric. Can you tell me a little bit about him and what he was playing and why that was sort of important in your evolution? Um, when I first started to go to clubs, I was a junior basketball head. To me, you couldn't do any better than Junior Vasquez. He was the number one DJ. You know, he's making these beats, these these songs and everything. But um, every once in a while, my friends in the clubs would be like, oh, we're going to D.C. Now, my aunt would not let me go to D.C. But when I finally went to D.C., the music they played, they played house music we had here. Plus, they were not scared of Detroit. They were not scared of a techno song that was Tech House before Tech House was a thing. Baltimore Club, all of that used to run into D.C. You would hear Powerful Impact and 
you know, looking for excitement and, and all these songs. I'm like, oh my God. They would push the music to a fever pitch, but they had their own dances, this thing called scuzz in DC. They just lose it, do backflips and everything. And to watch that is something. <laughs> it was like mostly two more technical tech techish beats. So DC, it was just like being in New York part two. And they had a huge club, tracks in the edge and all that stuff. So it was like really good. But Cedric was the one who orchestrated that. He was not the original DJ of the club down there. It was the guy named Mike, Mike Malaput. Mike Malaput stopped DJing and Cedric took over. You would kill for one of his CDs. Beats would be on there for just crazy beats. Armand Van Helden beats before we even knew what he was, you know. And it was like, wow, where are you getting this music from? And it was just out of the box from Junior Vasquez. It was wilder. It was more, more drama, you know, faster beats and all that kind of stuff. So listening to Cedric opened you up a bit more. He would be on the mic. He would scream and he would take the needle and just kill you in a club. It was it was an experience going out in tracks DC. They would be very naked. <laughs> I mean, Trax is a gay club, we should say. Yes, Trax is a gay club, but they would really get naked. I mean, take everything off. We had a uh, couple people in there, they would take a napkin and make about eight outfits out of this napkin. <laughs> no lie. <laughs> but yeah, Trax is something else. How did you get the name Vonalore? Vonalore is a combination of my great-grandfather and grandfather's name. Um, Allure is the house that I'm in. Virgilio and Juan. So they put the G, the V and the J together and got Juan. And it, it's five little letters, but it messes everybody up. I'm like, but you can spell Nguzu Nguzu, correct. But you can't spell Vaughn. A lot of these tracks that you've made are designed for the ballroom and the hook of the track is directly inspired by something that you know is going to go off in this very particular setting that I would say most people are not probably not going to experience in their mm -hmm. life. But those samples and those vocals have so much drama and so much power that you can play them anywhere in any club and they make people feel a way, even if they don't know what they're listening to, even if they don't know... Oh, this sample is from Paris is Burning, or this is Sanaya Ebony's voice, or mm -hmm. whatever. They don't have to know what it's from. It's like they get the you essence. Get the, you, you get the essence and the reference. But I, I let um, even let Ballroom know a couple years ago. There's some samples that are so ingrained into Ballroom, but they didn't know it was me. You know, you hear couldn't get enough back for more pussy, darling pussy, all this stuff. Um, Mike Hughes drops this as a Mike Hughes production. All that stuff is me. And no one knows it until I tell them. I'm like, yeah, listen to it. <laughs> so it, it was, it's, it's a bigger kick to me to watch them go, it is you. I'm like, yeah. Have some Lambrusco. <laughs> Turn the music up and give me a mic. <laughs> and that's basically where a lot of it came. It, it's, it's like an MC saying something to someone. and But you just catch it at the right time. And you say it the right way and it becomes thing my friend jay exclusive right now there's a, a song that i'm playing everyone's dying for it and it, it's it's any bitch wanted tonight i'm here but the way i separated it made it on this beat is everyone going crazy so i didn't say it shady like that i said i know but it sounds like you did <laughs> you made it shady yes the beat the way the beat is and the drama and the beat makes it really shady as i mentioned your facebook is a very great instructional for people who are uh, coming up in the ballroom scene or, or in the music, where they're fucking up, essentially. What are the biggest pet peeves of yours or the things that you see most commonly? There are certain things like, okay, we want everyone to be included. That's why all the different categories have manifested themselves into ballroom. But what we're not going to do is water down the category. The thing is, if you're going to do it, learn to do it right. Okay? It's not going to change itself for you. 
unless you innovate the category. If you don't innovate when you're in a category, it's not going to change for you. We're going to look at this and see what you do. And your friends may give you tens across the board, but when you go into another realm and get chopped, don't be mad because you weren't doing it correctly. And you know you're not doing it correctly. And the people that taught you know you're not doing it correctly. See, that's, that's the problem. Most of them who were doing things incorrectly already took classes. And I know from the people who taught you that this is not what they taught you. That's why I have so much mouth. I went to, um, there's a really great Vogue night here in New York called OTA. Love it. And it's on Mondays at a place called $3 Bill. If you're in town, you should go check it out if you want to kind of see the, the younger wave. But um, one thing that I was really struck by was the way um, Lego, who hosts the night, and some of the other kind of hosts and commentators were actually very like generous and giving to the people competing and took the time sometimes to explain to them. Mm-hmm. Like somebody was walking face and they mm-hmm. were like, no, because this no. category is about showing off your face and having a beautiful face. It isn't about laying down on the table and... <laughs> falling on the floor or whatever the case may be but I was I kept thinking if this was a more like traditional scenario they would just get be getting read out of the room believe me it, it happens <laughs> I mean, they brought, this person would probably be crying like running out of the room the problem is most of the times at the ball when you have people who've never been or predominantly a lot of straight people that come to a ball they get so caught up and they want to go out there and do it and it happens at every ball at latex, it, we get, <laughs> affectionately, we get one fool per year at latex. It just storms the runway, and we're just like, oh. But it, it happens. People get caught up. You know, they hear the cheering and everything, and they think they can come do it. Some of them do it. But some of them don't. And we, like, we escort them up. Come on, you know. Let me get you a drink, you know. Try to be nice about it, but sometimes you just hear, <laughs> cut the beat. You mentioned just before about a lot more straight people going to balls and I've seen the ball culture really open up I guess it seems in the last five or ten years where there's a lot of people in every country around the world Mm -hmm. uh, learning how to vogue there are a lot of balls in different places like Russia and Berlin and all over Asia and I see a lot more women, straight women Mm -hmm. competing and being part of houses as well I was curious to get your thoughts on that kind of stuff. Do you think that this is good for the culture and that it's spreading it and it's keeping alive to a wider audience? Or how do you feel about um, the way that the culture has sort of grown? Well, the way the culture has grown is there are dance competitions overseas. And they had dance competitions that specialized in street dancing. And so that was the hip-hop, poppers, lockers, all that kind of stuff. Well, back in the day, the breakers used to battle the vulgars on the West Side Highway. So it is actually a street dance, too. So Funkin' Styles, which was one of the um, one of the dance competitions, included Vogue. So they started to get Javier Ninja, Benny Ninja, to come and teach the same way they did workshops for hip-hop and everything else. They started to tap us on the shoulders to come and teach. You know, they wanted an authentic ballroom DJ, so they got me. And I came over there, and I watched the competition, but I was also excited to see the house dancing and everything else. While Javier uh, Ninja, Archie Ninja, Deshaun Lanvin, were teaching Laomi, they started to make chapters of houses overseas. And they became part of the ballroom scene. Because you're a ninja, I'm a ninja now. We're connected. And they grew, uh, most of them specializing in Vogue, in old way, in new way, in Vogue femme. Um, they're getting the rest of ballroom, runway, bizarre, face, modeling. They're getting all of that. So it's, it's pushing up. As long as you do it authentically, we're good. The stuff that I write on Facebook is geared towards them too. Um, Jack Mizrahi, myself, Selvin, Tim, uh, Lanvin, all, a, a lot of people 
influential people in Baltimore have gone over there and taught, and we oversee what the houses are doing. You know, we correct them. You can hit me up anytime. You can ask me if, if this is right. You know, what do you think about this? And I'm like, because they're, they're like sponges. They're getting all this knowledge, the do's and don'ts of ballroom. And they're actually, they've had some hugely successful balls. We have our first legends over there now. Charlie Ebony, Kendall Mugler, Vinny Revlon, Lissandra Ninja. We have our first legends over there now. They have to be able to support themselves and have this knowledge so they can carry their scene on. I guess I was wondering if there was pushback in the ballroom scene, which was created in some ways as a refuge for black gay men mm-hmm. and transgender and people of color who didn't necessarily have a place to do what they wanted to do and to express themselves in mm-hmm. this theatrical fashion within very strict cultural roles and like, you know, layers of privilege. Mm-hmm. If there's a pushback within ballroom culture to people now belonging to it who don't maybe need it in the same way or for whom it doesn't have the same meaning mm-hmm. or legacy or like, you know, a, a privileged white woman from Russia being in a ballroom house perhaps doesn't need that community and need that support mm-hmm. and need that place the way that someone else may. You're right. You're right. And, and sometimes um, it, it depends on how a lot of people come to ballroom. Um, I came to ballroom not out of a need, but out of a want because of the dancing. You know, I I looked at ballroom for what it was, and yes, I see people didn't have a place to stay, and, you know, you took the place of someone's mother. Well, my mother and father were here, and I had money and all this stuff, so that, that narrative didn't fit me. I wanted to go to the club. That's what you have that I want. And the camaraderie, I had friends, but now you're another group of friends. So it depends on how everyone's coming to the ballroom and how it affects you. Um, there's, there's ignorance inside of ballroom a lot um, where people say things just flip ignorant things. But you've always had straights in ballroom. There's always been whites in ballroom. Not to the degree that it is now. But what did you think was over in Russia when you opened up a chapter? It's not this whole group of Chinese people that's just going to come out of the frozen tundra and be, you know, people of color in Russia. No. This is what's in Russia. This is what your house set up. These are the people you cheered on because you have to turn it on its face because you have people in the houses talking about people, other races, but their house has a chapter overseas too. So what are you talking about? I mean, I can see the argument both ways because I, did, I actually and that's what I think said, both ways. It's you know, just, I mentioned Russia, but Russia mm-hmm. is historically very repressive towards okay. gay people, and I could see that having um, ballroom houses there and these competitions, and even it being more mainstream on TV with like mm-hmm. street style and yes. whatever the big dance competitions are called, helps like change the understanding. Of that and helps change the culture of that. Like I can, I can see the pluses and the minuses, but I was imagining that perhaps there was a pushback. We're dealing with that as as it comes. You know, we're trying to change minds and influence things. Um, there's been a lot of pushback because um, the fear of what happened to Vogue before, you know, along the Madonna lines, and which was. Which everyone says, you know, Madonna didn't invent Vogue and this and that, blah, blah, blah. She never said she did. Okay? She never said she did. But then somebody said she never said she didn't. I'm like, what did you want this person to do? But she didn't get back to the community. Actually, she went into and made them, Jose and Lewis, the head choreographers of a whole tour. She could have just come in, saw what she wanted, got them to imitate it, and took it. So when you say people are worried about what happened before, there's a feeling that in that time, in the early 90s, when Vogue Mm -hmm. came out and all this stuff, that people were taking from the ballroom culture 
popularizing it, using what mm-hmm. elements they wanted, and people who were actually instrumental in creating that didn't mm-hmm. make money, didn't get credit, and were just kind of discarded after that wasn't cool this, anymore. This is the thing that they're weary about, and I understand it fully. But I'm like, when you're doing it, you have to protect yourself on anything. You know, the thing is, you have to be willing to give to someone in order for them to take it. If you clam up and don't do it, you're not going to give to them. They won't get it. You know, they can they can imitate what they see, but unless you give up there and tell, okay, this is what you got to do, blah, 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 you still won't get it. So the thing is, you protect yourself up to that point. What is this? How Put it on paper. Do what you got to do, you know? Because we're sitting up there like, you know, these people who are making Vogue tracks, most of the people that make these Vogue tracks, we don't even know. We don't hear it. We don't use it. It's not going anywhere. If you don't know how to make it, we know you don't know how to make it. The ones that do make it are hot. We'll use. Because you listened and because you you got it. But it's plenty of them that just went, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And that's the way we did. Oh, yeah. I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, we talked a lot about ballroom, but you also play all sorts of DJ sets, ones mm-hmm. that incorporate that music, ones that are you know, house music sets that don't have much ballroom. But what do you feel like overall, over all this music that you're making, playing, et cetera, what are the things that you want to lure, gravitate towards? What do you like in a DJ set? What do you like in music? What do you, What is the want to lure energy that you're always gravitated towards? I want to play different things. And different things in by the by the same token of like how I did ballroom. Um, like I said, I'm locked up in my office. You have no idea what's coming out those speakers. And that's what I want a DJ to do for me. That's what I want to do for the people. You don't know what it is, but when you hear it, you can't stop listening to it. And it's introducing new records and, you know, knowing how to keep people on the floor, sandwiching new tracks between two well-known tracks. But you can't leave with that new track. And like, what is that? And having people run up and say, what is that? Is the greatest thing ever. And I'm like, I just want that energy. I want, I want these kids to understand how it was with the mega clubs and being out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday, Friday, begging for Sunday. And then Sunday became the hot night in D.C. The only night we had in D.C. we weren't in the club was Wednesday. You would pray for Wednesday so you could stay home. But they don't have that. They have lounges. They have lounges and a a medium club. They don't know about the long lines. They don't know about the proper etiquette of a guest list, what that is, you know, or or communicating and and joining people in the club to dance. They don't they don't know what that is. And I'm I'm sad that they missed. I love I grew up in it. But I'm sad that they missed it because that's a part of club life they will never get. Well, I have so much more to say on that, but we'll save that <laughs> for another time. One last question. Does anyone at work ever just catch you making music or playing your music all crazy? They catch me. They catch me in a way that's funny. <laughs> um, my supervisor walked by and they actually caught me. I was playing... Um, I had a DJ set. I was doing radio. And they walked by and like sending me uh, screenshots. I see you. And I'm playing in my house. Like, oh my God. <laughs> like, what a walk by there. It's a lot of exclusive. I'm like, it's funny. It work and everything. What up? What industry are you in? IT for the government. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to embed some little wanna lure drops in some mm, yes. uh, <laughs> secret government telecom. Yeah. Well, Vaughn, you're playing tonight at uh, House of Mess at Elsewhere here in Brooklyn. So we'll let you get on with it. Thank you so much for joining me here. Thank you for having me. On the RA Exchange. Thank you.